You're listening to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm your host, Jared Smith. Hello, and welcome to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. Each week, it's my job to engage with some of the brightest minds in marketing and higher education to bring you actionable insights you can use to level up your school's marketing and enrollment efforts. In this episode, we'll be talking about data-driven decision-making and storytelling with Ken Reeves, Director of Research and Strategic Projects at Southeastern University. With over 15 years' experience in institutional research, Ken has tons of valuable advice for anybody looking to make their data more compelling and actionable. We start by talking about the synergies between marketing and institutional research, and then we get into some of the specific techniques and thought processes that he follows to create compelling, story-driven narratives that bring the numbers to life. We wrap up by talking about some of the potential pitfalls associated with data-driven decision-making, and then Ken gives some advice on how to nurture a more data-driven culture. As always, show notes for this episode and others can be found at echodelta.co slash podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ken Reeves. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here today. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us and really excited for the conversation. Yeah. Uh, before we get started, I think it'd be great if you could just introduce us to Southeastern University and mm -hmm. your role there. Great. Appreciate it. Well, Southeastern University is in Lakeland, Florida. It is a great institution. It has been amongst the fastest growing churches, according to the Chronicle Edu Higher Education, for the last 10 years. Our Official enrollment for this past fall was 8,759 students, which is a tremendous growth rate over the last six years. Uh, somewhere, perhaps this coming fall or the following fall, we will top 10,000 students. We have over 100 sites. We have about 40 sites uh, in high schools where we offer dual enrollment. Two students there at no cost, pretty much. Uh, our, we have sites located in 27 different states across the country and in one foreign country where students are taking online courses that we are working with them in. Uh, and it, those areas will continue to grow. And uh, it is a great campus with a great group of students. It is obviously a Christian college, and but they do a good work across the board with, with students in every, every area. And we recently started an aviation program. So that's one of our new startups uh, and our new programs that is kicking off for this fall, along, along with uh, we started a doctor of ministry last year and some other programs as well. So we're actually doing one you might be interested in. We're going to be kicking off in 2020 a master's in design management. Hmm. And uh, it looks like it's going to be a really good program. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. and now your role at Southeastern, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I am the Director of Research and Strategic Projects. I'm a part of the Office of uh, Institutional Effectiveness under Dr. Perminer, who is the Vice President, and Cody Lloyd, who is my direct uh, Executive Director. Uh, we work together as a team. We have somebody who does is a Director of Institutional Effectiveness, and we have people who do the data and do a lot of that type of reporting as well. Plus, I have a couple student workers, yeah. and I hire outside of what people might normally think uh, here at Southeastern is I actually hire graphic students. Really? Juniors and seniors, yep, because of the need today to be more visual, the need today to communicate 
unfortunately to me in some ways in snippets or in small bite-sized pieces, but meaningful inf information, um, that it comes in quite handy. They have built my uh, infographics. They've helped build a brand for my office. They've helped in uh, building dashboards and other things like this and uh, helped in doing research. So it's a little bit different. You know, I can crunch numbers and I can do a lot of this and I am a left brain and a right brain person so I can do the creative part of things. But having them on board just it just expands the possibilities yeah. and the ideas. And when you're thinking today about institutional research and research and strategic projects, that's what you have to do. So what I focus on are the deep research projects, the detailed stuff the things that do make a difference in data information that's out there and many different aspects. I work with every department on campus. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, that kind of intro. Uh, you've got yeah. your, your hands on a lot of different things. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm really excited to have that conversation around uh, data mm -hmm. and storytelling with data and really making it actionable. That is, I think anybody listening to this podcast that's in, higher ed enrollment marketing knows we've been driving towards that for a long time. Mm -hmm. It is sort of on the tip of everybody's tongues to be more data driven. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, just conversations with you, we've talked about interesting ways that uh, institutional research that IR can, can partner with marketing and help mm -hmm. in, inform that um, above and beyond maybe the sort of uh, marketing analytics that they might have mm -hmm. in their department, but uh, really providing that kind of deeper insight and analysis that can can drive some big decisions. Good. I would mm -hmm. love that. I think that'd be a great uh, starting place sure. uh, to kind of dig in there. And um, maybe I'd just love to hear your perspective on some ways that you think marketing and IR can, can be better partners. Yeah. I think there's a number of ways that they can be. And it has to be an openness, obviously, from both sides to be able to work together. And I have a great partnership with our enrollment management team and our marketing team over there. And it's really a good give and take type of situation. Um, and, it, and it's necessary and, and it's really important because what they're doing in bringing those numbers, bringing those students in, obviously is the lifeblood of the institution. And it's also the fact that what we're doing and we're looking at the numbers, the data, needs to match up and needs to be understood and needs to be interpreted. And so we need, as an IR person, I need the voice of enrollment management sometimes to speak into what I'm seeing and what I'm doing. I need enrollment management's help at times in coding or clarifying coding or cleaning up some codes perhaps where students were mistakenly coded as transfers when they should be first-time freshmen or things like that. Um, and I think the other side of the coin is I can speak into, or anybody in institutional research can speak into enrollment management with information to help them. And at the one level, it is information. Um, it's things like helping them perhaps to inform uh, who our competitors are, who are the ones where if students don't come to Southeastern, where do they go? And that's true for every institution. And there are a number of ways to get at that information. And one of the best ways is the National Student Clearinghouse, which most institutions of higher education are a part of today, where you can actually, um, if you're part of one of their services, Student Tracker, you can actually find and get that information and help. You won't find 100% of them, but you'll find 
more than a large enough sampling to be able to say these are our direct competitors. And I think that informs. Um, another thing I think that helps informs is where did our students come from who are here? Not just on the level of, well, we have students from 43 states uh, at traditional program and 27 at, the, at sites, um, but more along the lines of we had 50 students come from Miami, Florida. We had 25 students come from Gainesville, whatever it might be. Uh, that informs because that helps marketing to know where to direct their efforts and that type of thing, uh, whether it's Facebook or something else. Um, other areas that deal with that type of thing also include just looking at the makeup of the students that are coming in and helping them to see that and what they're, you know, helping either to confirm the numbers that they're seeing, like in conversion rates and uh, registrations or students moving from the inquiry to the applicant to the acceptance and so forth, uh, but also to look and say, okay, where, where do we need to work together on this type of stuff? So I think on the data level, there's a lot of different ways that we can work together because they do inform what I do and, and I do inform what they do. And so if we partner, then it's a better perspective. And sometimes when you go in, they don't know how you're going to react. They don't know your attitude. So, you know, I try to reach out and I, I don't come in and say, oh, I'm going to be your savior or anything like that. Uh, we just start talking and, you know, when they need data, we provide it. When they have questions that they ask, we, we do that kind of thing. And so, you know, and it's been even issues like, well, how many master's level students did we get in from this? And how many of them are undergraduates, graduates of Southeastern who have moved into our master's programs? How many of them are from outside? And where are they from? So there are a lot of different ways we inform and, and help them in our marketing efforts. And we don't get into the nitty gritty of their conversion rates on particular campaigns or where they're doing their things in that, that perspective. But if there are ways that we can partner and help each other, then that's what we want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of helping paint that longer term picture yeah. and, yeah. and show the fuller perspective mm -hmm. of, you know, where I know you mentioned to me, you know, what type of student is likely to be the most successful, mm -hmm. Yes, you know, and, and graduate on time and, and be happiest with our school and, mm -hmm. and uh, go on to be a great alumni and, right, yeah. and donor. And that, that's the kind of thing that's extremely important mm -hmm. is, I mean, we all have limited resources. We all have limited, and we want students to succeed at Southeastern, and so they need to be a good fit. And whether you're talking about Southeastern or Florida Southern or Polytech or Warner or any other institution in Polk County or beyond there, the thing that always is a concern is we want the right students here because we want them to succeed. We don't want them to have a bad experience wherever they're going. We want them to, to succeed there. We want to set them up from day one for success. And so uh, looking at that type of information, and I've been working on a basically almost a two-and-a-half-year project, where, and we're now in the analytics of it, looking at where our students come from, what students do best at Southeastern, what students thrive. We, we have an effort that goes well beyond IR uh, and looking at st student thriving on campus and looking at how uh, it is a emphasis right now on campus of credo to really help us to help our students succeed better. And so we're trying to take all of that data and information and translate it into ways that 
is beneficial for enrollment management and marketing, as well as for the registrar's office to the School of Natural Sciences to the Department of Communication, whatever it might mm-hmm. be on campus. Well, I think that uh, that's kind of a great segue, the idea of you know kind of packaging the information mm-hmm. in ways that are going to be really useful and not just informative, but actually actionable. Right. Um, so I'd love to talk with you about that. I think uh, one theme that I've come across and talking with folks and interviews mm-hmm. on this podcast is the idea of storytelling with data. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, storytelling on the marketing side is all the rage. Everybody's talking about, you know, telling your brand story, but, you know, data is tricky because um, it's so easy to kind of data dump on people. You print mm-hmm. out this, you know, report out of Google Analytics or Tableau or whatever it is, right. and you show it to folks and, you, you know, <laughs> and, and it looks impressive. But mm-hmm. uh, you can see people glaze over, or they're like, "Okay, gee, this is this is great. This is nice to know, mm-hmm. but w- what do I do with this?" So, as a as a data guy, as a data person, um, how do you think about making the data meaningful and actionable? What's 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 going on in your mind? What kind of approaches do you have you favored or learned over the years to to make that better? While you were talking, I, I thought back to an old story. It was a, it's a story of a a kid who's a kid. He's an adult, but he's in seminary studying to be a preacher. And he was asked to go out and preach at a little country church. And so that Sunday he went out there, and and unexpectedly there was a snowstorm. He gets there, and there was only one person, an old farmer, who shows up for church. And he goes, "Well, what should we do?" He says, "Well, I'm here." to hear a sermon, so why don't you preach? And so he gets up there and he preaches, and he preaches the entire sermon he'd planned, and then he added some more, and he added some more, and added some more, and finally after 45 minutes, he'd run out of steam, and he prayed and sat down and said, you know, that's all. And then after it was over, he goes down and he shakes the farmer's hand, and and he asked him how he did, and the farmer thought for a moment, and he said, well, if I go out to the pasture this afternoon to feed my cows, and only one cow shows up, I'm not going to dump the whole load on it. <laughs> so, you know, and, and in data scientists and people who work with data and analytics, mm-hmm. we get excited about the data. And our tendency is to want to dump the whole load on everybody. Right. And, and to a degree, that's because oftentimes there's a lot of story there to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, we are not writing war and peace. We are writing small, informative pieces of information. That's what, at least what we should be doing. And so there are some things you really have to think about as you're looking at that data and as you're looking at who you're working with. And what it always is important for me is, and one of the things that I did a couple of years ago is I adopted more of an entrepreneurial mindset. And that is, I want to know what my market is. Who are my customers? And and it uses marketing terms. You know, who are those that are going to convert to through these messages? Who is? What are my products that I am selling? I'm not selling obviously anything, but that I'm putting out there for them to use. And so that makes you step back and look at it a little bit more clearly to think through that. And oftentimes people come and say, hey, can you give me data on this class with this set of students and let me understand it? And no, it's not that way. You've got to ask 
a couple more questions because oftentimes they may not even know what data to ask for. You know, I, I think of a, a recent situation where they asked for data and then I looked at it and said, that's not really what you need, you know, for what you're doing. And so I always teach people who work with me, ask the second question. And the second question is, what are you trying to learn? Mm-hmm. Or what are you trying to understand from the data that you're wanting and needing? Yeah, that's always the first question. And if I'm preparing a story, the first question is always, "What's the proposition? What's the question I'm trying to answer? What is it I'm trying to get across?" In many ways, it's like writing an article for a newspaper or a blog post uh, or a sermon or a speech. What's the hook? What's that piece of information that you are going to get to the you know from the from this piece of information what is the piece of information that you want to get across to everybody who reads this mm-hmm. um, I think in many ways that's why years and years ago when you start doing papers and professional papers and stuff for publication or other stuff in a in a discipline you always write an executive summary on top because most people aren't going to read the 50 pages that are behind it. They're going to read those first two pages and then they'll skip to what they need. And so you've got to today, you've got to really be clear on what it is you're trying to, to communicate. What's the question you're trying to answer and that type of thing. And that's where you have to start. You got to understand that. And then I think the next part of storytelling is, well, what's the information? What's the data? Uh, what is the information it can tell? And we think of data in the terms of numbers, but oftentimes that's why I use the term information because it may not always be that. For example, you may be coupling the information about where our students are graduating and going to, but you're bringing in information from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics on what are the fastest growing programs or fields uh, in the job market today. You may be looking at information on from an Indeed or somewhere else. And so you're bringing together different types of information in order to tell that story that's there. And that requires thinking outside the box a little bit. Yeah, I can give them information on where um, our students are being placed, but is that all that they really need to know? You know, And no, what they really need to know is, is this you know, where are our students going now? But where will they be going five years from now, right? Or ten years from now? Mm-hmm. And so you've got to know what data you need when you're looking at that type of thing. And then once you've got that, then you can say, all right, this is my question, this is my proposition, this is the data, the information that helps me. Now the question becomes, what's the best way to tell this story? Um, and today institutional research has more and more tools to communicate that you have infographic like i said earlier we at one time you had only excel and and access Mm -hmm. now you've got you still have excel and excel has its place i mean you could if it's a printed report that you need to put together in a one page with a graph or two probably excel is your best way to go just pdf it and get it out and you know if it's fast and you need to do that um, or throw a few pivot tables on it if all they want to do is be able to see it and play with it themselves. Sometimes that's the only story you need to tell. But more importantly today is you need to look at, all right, do I need something that's going to include narrative? Do I need something that's just basically um, graphics, visuals, like an infographic or a dashboard? Um, dashboards are a whole nother creature. 
Um, so, but there's even more than that. It, there's um, shorthand, the site that I showed you earlier that we that we're using. Um, there are other ways to tell those types of stories. Is it an executive summary? Is it a fire fact? Is it something small, unique, that is can be communicated, say, in less than 50 or 60 words that we just need to get out there for people to look at? There's an important place for the one-page report. So what, what, what you have to do there is you have to really think through what's the best way to communicate that story. And then you start putting those together. And I always think of it in the form of a narrative. Um, another one is a slide deck, you know, PowerPoint or um, Apple's versions of all of those types of things, um, or even Google's versions, whatever. I mean, in their Canva, there's a lot of that type of stuff available. And it's what's the best way to tell the story? And then begin to tell it as a story. But when you tell it as a story, you think about it from the perspective of the person who's reading it. Mm -hmm. Again, you go back to your question. What do they need to know? What is the answer that I'm providing for them? But at the same time, that means editing it down ruthlessly, getting it down to what is really needed. And that determines the medium that you're doing, that you're using. Um, and all again, all of those tools have their place, but you have to pick that. And so then telling the story means I'm going to put this out as a cohesive unit mm -hmm. to provide to them. And then once you've done that, I always run it by people. I run it by somebody, my vice president, my boss, to let them look at that. I even run it by other people in the office, even outside the office. Uh, sometimes I run stuff by Katrina, my, you know, my daughter who, who works here, because you know she has the graphic eye that she can look at with those mm -hmm. types of things. Um, and, I, and that way I can get input before we polish it up finally and we start to put that out. That yeah, way. that makes so much sense because uh, especially when you are a subject matter expert, it's so easy to think, well, this is obvious. It, yeah. Of course, this <laughs> yeah, this right. makes perfect sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you put it out there and, and it's no different than a, than a marketer mm -hmm. message testing. Yeah. And so you really are taking that kind of product-driven marketing mm -hmm. mindset mm -hmm. to how you're packaging up your data internally. You said something that it sparked my curiosity. You said a fire fact. Is that an industry IR term or is that something you've branded because I know it's the SEU fire it's it's something we've branded okay it, uh -huh. so it, tell me yeah. about that because yeah. how did you come up with this idea of a fire fact and where did that come from well that came from Casey one of my student workers uh-huh yeah she came up with a name for it we haven't started using those yet other than I have put out a few things in email and stuff like that but and we've actually developed a card so we can either print it or we can use it in an email. And what it's basically going to be is sitting out a short, succinct piece of information that's important, either for a subgroup of the college or the entire college or whatever it might be. It may be the faculty members. It might be the staff. It may be enrollment management. Say, hey, did you know this or have you understood this about your people, yeah. about your students or about our staff. Mm -hmm. And so it's those types of things. And so uh, we've shifted some stuff around the institution has and how they do their internal. And so I'm actually, we, Cody and I had a conversation about this last week. Uh, we're gonna incorporate some of those into that internal communication that mm -hmm. goes out. And Firefact was just a nice little catchy yeah. name for it. And so that's what we're going to use. Neat. 
Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. That's a great idea. So, but I, I have done that at other institutions, so, mm -hmm. and it's worked effectively. Yeah. Very cool. So um, I, I definitely want to talk about what you're doing on shorthand and the, uh -huh. the uh, microsite that you put together to tell the story. But it, can we kind of circle back to just the broader concept of storytelling? Yeah. To your mind, as you approach a, a data-driven story, uh -huh. what um, – what to your mind are kind of the key elements that need to be in place to actually let you know, Hey, I'm, I'm storytelling here. How do you, how do you think about that? I mean, I know we, we kind of talk about the, the classic story structure, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, but do you think in those terms or do you approach it in a different way? I'm just curious. What's your thought process there? Yeah, that's a really good question because some, I think for me now it's almost kind of automatic because I have written a lot in the past uh, for publication and from articles to um, websites to things like Fast Facts before to a book. So I, I think in those terms and sometimes it's just more automatic. Um, first thing I try to look for is a way to personalize, to flesh out the story that I'm telling. And sometimes that'll just be with something right up front with uh, like the shorthand that I sent you. Uh, it'll be a story about a person or a fictitious person, whatever it might be. Um, sometimes it'll be a story within the information that's provided to, to them. Um, so that, cause I think story informs story makes real what the data provides. And so when you can tell a story with the data, when you can tell a story that supports the data, you have informed it in such a way that makes it more real because they can see it in the flesh, so to speak. They can realize that this does really make a difference. Well, it seems like part of it has got to be, I love the idea of personalizing it, really thinking about mm -hmm. what's going to be relevant to my audience and how am I going to personalize this to them. And then what I hear you saying is I have to make it concrete. Mm -hmm. I have to be yes. able to bring this, these abstract numbers down into the real world right. to show mm -hmm. how does this actually play out? Yeah. And sometimes telling the story also means teaching. For mm -hmm. example, I'm working on a dashboard right now that will include some dynamic text in it that will ultimately change depending upon what the data shows for a particular department. And the idea behind it is, and the first part of that will be it'll include things like what is a first time in college student? What is a transfer and the differences? What is a first generation student? Why does that matter? Those types of things. Those are terms I'm comfortable with. Those are terms that others in administration are comfortable with, but faculty out there may have never thought in those terms right and so good point when i'm thinking about telling the story here and i'm walking through this dashboard okay, they come and they land on the first page of the dashboard but then they want to explore a little deeper and they hit a page it just tells them a few facts then they move to the next page it helps them to use what they just learned to understand something about their department and then they move to the next report within that dashboard that says that again informs and provides them a way to actually look for that. So that is one of the ways that I try to make concrete that data. And a lot of it depends on, again, the question and um, the data itself. 
Mm-hmm. And what's the best way to communicate that data? Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and sometimes it's visualizing it, like with an infographic. Mm-hmm. You know, we did a, one of my students did an infographic. My student workers did an infographic, sharp one. Uh, the differences between our traditional student population and our non-traditional student population inside of the sites. You know, it's one thing to say the differences are average age is at 19 and our average age is 24, but in, but to see that visually and to see those differences makes it real. And sometimes making it visual makes it real. And sometimes telling a story makes it real. But even the visual itself makes it real. So when I'm putting this out, when I'm putting this out, I'm trying to, in essence, in what I do, carry on a conversation like we are here. Mm-hmm. Anticipating questions that they might ask and giving them an answer even before they ask the question. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. So. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about uh, that shorthand site yeah, then and, uh-huh. and kind of where you're going with that. It's it's a really interesting approach and very much, very much in the storytelling <laughs> kind right. of approach to – obviously, folks will be listening to this, not watching, but um, to kind of set this up. Essentially, what uh, you showed to me was uh, kind of a, a long-scrolling, single-page website, kind of a yeah. microsite mm-hmm. that has some uh, – photography included in it Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of provide context and set the stage and it ties along with the narrative. And then it actually starts out, uh, you know, with kind of a provocative question Mm -hmm. and a story. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and whatever you care to share about how you have laid that out and kind of what's said on that page? Uh, Yeah. Super interesting. I appreciate that. Where I got the idea, I'm obviously the creative side of me is looking for new ways and things and i i read voraciously and i look at things well and one of the sites that has always been a site that i've looked at a lot because they seem to do some cutting edge stuff is bbc's mobile site they do a great job with telling stories in little pieces because people are busy today and that's what i want to learn how to do um but if you go down further into their site and you get to their features, some of them are video features, some of them are photo stories, which I learned from. But some of them are like the site that we're talking about, and it's because they use shorthand. Uh, and it is a great site where you can go in, and like any web page site, you can build it, use their building blocks to build whatever it is you want to communicate. And a nice thing is about theirs is it's automatically formatted for. You can format it for a mobile device, a tablet, or a website. And it's all and it's available on all of those, and you can really tweak it to get it to work right. And the idea behind it is, again, we're attracted to stories. We're attracted to real life. And, I mean, that's why you have all of this stuff out there on the History Channel. And every channel you can think of, it has all of these, you know, kind of semi-real-life stories and shows on. And to be able to, and one of the formats that always has been around for a while is what I call the 2020 format, mm-hmm. where at the beginning, or the 60 Minutes format, which probably pioneered it, where a story is asked, a question is asked, a hook is put out there, and then there's a story behind it. And so what I tried to do with the disappearance of Samantha Green was put a hook out there that 
is like the first part of one of those shows Mm -hmm. where you get this two-minute snippet then it goes to commercial (laughs) right (laughs) but in my case it's a it's it's a read time of three minutes my my goal is a three-minute read time that then sends you to something for the rest of the information to get the attention to really say if you go look at this data there are real life implications to this so i basically used a told a creative story about the disappearance of a student with a twist in it and i don't want to give it away right. uh, with, with, with a twist in it at the end that causes you to realize oh this is where he's going with this this makes sense now this is really true mm-hmm. now i want to go see the data to back up what i've said and you know that's what i've read and that's the type of story that it is and so it's told with um photographs we i wrote the story in a draft form uh and then i gave it to my graphic design student and i gave them the basic idea we storyboarded a little bit of it which for those who aren't that background that just basically means drawing some stick figure pictures out there to say we're going to move from this picture to this picture to this picture along the way and then she started with it and ran with it and came up with lots of different ideas we you know we went through a lot number of um renditions of it and we got it down to where all right, we're going to story of a student driving away from campus, but all you can see is out the front windshield of the car, her back over here, and her phone set up in the in the middle, and and we used the pictures to kind of set the tone for what was on the the text that followed or with that. So, example, we went back to a childhood picture when it talked about her growing up and the early contacts she had with with the institution, and then we moved to a story of a student, a picture of a student with a backpack on as she came to campus, and then what happened after that, and then pictures of the campus and actually empty Del Prado as um, the main drags for the main highway so to speak through walkway through southeastern and it shows an empty del prado uh because she's not there anymore and 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 it is a fictitious student but it makes the pictures reinforce the text and the text reinforce the pictures when you get to the end you know what i'm talking about and you know where i'm going with this and you know the importance of this because we never thought about how many students every institution in this country, let alone Southeastern, loses on a yearly basis mm-hmm. because they don't come back. Right. And do we really know much about why they left? And so that's kind of what I set that up to Well, I'm be. glad you said that, by the way, because I didn't want to think we had some sort of, didn't want folks to think we had some sort of campus safety issue. Right. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I'll have my director of safety coming after me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give him a heads up before this airs. That's but, right. Yeah. No, that's great. And I love the way you you laid that out. It's it's like you said it, the the three minute read. It's enough mm-hmm. to get engrossed in it, um, and the conclusions you kind of draw at the end. And you and I loved how you kind of along with that talking about the students that disappear that never come back, mm-hmm. uh, teased out some uh, towards the end. You kind of tease out some statistics and some mm-hmm. really pertinent information. Did you did you know that you know if they meet you know, uh, have these characteristics is more likely to happen. And then you, I just, uh, you kind of say, you give us an, a taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when it kind of ends. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So a bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. really what I wanted because I wanted, 
you know, and in marketing, you know this, you, you want them to click. Mm-hmm. You want them to move to the next step, the next level, whatever it might be. And that's what I wanted with this. I wanted them not just to read it and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to be able to read it and take the next step, which is go explore the data. Right. You know, and and I think that's the really important thing for that. And the nice thing is they'll discover in the data not only why students leave or some of the risk factors associated with students who have a higher susceptibility of leaving, but if they explore the data, they'll also discover what makes students successful. And it's not just about high school GPA, although that's one of those factors. There are other things within that. And so, you know, oftentimes when we get into it, we start talking about the students who leave and why they left and how we can right. keep them. And that's really, really, really important. And look at our fancy we, multivariate analysis. That's, and That's yeah. exactly right. You know, and, you know, and the decision trees and all of the rest of the right. stuff that goes with it. But, but also look at why students succeed as well. And so to me, it's a journey. And one of the things we're doing with this project, the RPG initiative, is we're looking at more than just the, the one snapshot. My goal is to look at the journey from when they decide to inquire and apply all the way through when they walk across the stage and they graduate and they succeed and they move on to that next step in life. Because I'm all about helping them succeed and, and helping them be able to take those next steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good stuff. Um, here's kind of a question that um, certainly in the cre- creative profession, uh, you know, comes up a good bit in, in our world uh, and creative marketing and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, that it's been informed by research for, you know, 50 years, mm-hmm. um, even back in the, the Mad Men era, they were uh, using research to inform the creative. And yet there's this kind of fear, this question of, you know, is it possible to be too data-driven? And so I'd love to, you mentioned something earlier when we first kicked off, you said making data-informed decisions, but kind of allowing for other things. In your mind, um, how do you know when you're being too data-focused and it's time to maybe look outside just strictly with the the numbers say. Yeah. I think every IR person actually wrestles more with the other side of it. How do we get them to be more data focused? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to use data more in informed decisions. Mm-hmm. But but the reality is it can go the other way as well. And one of the things you worry about and you're always concerned about is misinterpreting data. Mm-hmm. And that is always a risk. It's not directly with what you have, but it Mm -hmm. is one of the dangers that we overuse data and we don't understand the data. And so, um, in fact, we use wrong data. We use data that was, you know, to decide one question for answering another question, which really it wasn't meant for. And that is always one of the dangers of data. And so when when I talk with faculty and we work on these things, we try to hone it down to answering the questions that they need to ask. They're asking. And at the same time, letting them know as a part of this process that, you know, this is an answer for this question. If you want a broader perspective, let me know and we'll provide more information to you to help with that type of thing. So, yeah, there are those points when data is too much. And I think the first one is when we use the wrong data 
to inform a new decision. Uh, and it not, may not be that it's completely wrong, but it's off enough that it could miss. It's going to make a difference. It, it could make a difference. In yeah. Um, another danger with data is what I call analysis paralysis, you know, where we've got this information and we don't act on it. And then we wait and we get the same information next year just with one more year's worth of data, but we still don't act on it. And I think one of the big frustrations of every IR office is when we provide that information, we provide those reports, and then we run into them, you know, in the lunchroom or in the, on the, in a hallway or someplace, and we ask, did you have any questions about the data I sent to you? And they say, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't gotten to it yet. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they haven't used it the way for what you thought. And so, you know, sometimes they collect the data and we don't make decisions on the data. Mm-hmm. We don't use it to inform. Um, data can't solve every problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that we always have to keep in mind. Uh, data by itself doesn't necessarily solve a problem. Um, you know, when you go to the doctor, you, the nurse, the nurse practitioner, whoever she might be, who first sees you, she takes your blood pressure, she takes your temperature, she gets your weight, she gets your height, she gets all of that type of information uh, that's there. But then you go in and see the doctor, and the doctor looks at that data, and then he asks more questions. Or, you know, he pokes around and makes us cough and, you know, all that kind of kind of stuff, yeah. listens to our heart. And so he collects more information to inform the data that he just had. Or he looks at the blood results and he, and he brings all of that together with his experience in order to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's important with it. And sometimes I think, as a part of that is that we inform it with everything that we have. Um, one of the things that I see is what I call the ping pong effect, where you know if you throw a ping pong in this room, it's going to bounce off of everywhere. If you drop some ping pong balls on a the table, they're going to roll off the end of the table and be all over the place. So just scatter. And I think sometimes that happens with data. Oh, we got this piece of data. Well, that might be interesting to know what this is. What about this over here? Mm-hmm. And we never really get back to where we were to start with and making a decision based upon that data. Um, And then I think the other danger with it is, is there are things that are statistically significant Mm -hmm. and look impressive, but they're not practically significant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have to be very careful in asking the question, well, does this really make a difference? at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, in isolation, it may look at it and say, oh, wow, well, we found the, you know, the sword that will divide the students into those that are here and want here, and we can right. really make decisions to raise our retention rate and graduation rates or whatever it might be. And then we realize, no, that's not a magic bullet. It's not the, a magic wand or a magic potion. Uh, it really, when you look at it in a bigger picture, doesn't mean very much. And so um, we have to look more at that type of data too. You know, a good example of that would be um, you see study, not so much studies, but the conversations out there. If we can get them into students into a sorority or fraternity or those types of things, those students persist. Well, they do, but the problem is we don't typically 
put them into those types of things, encourage them in those types of things till late in the first semester or the beginning of the second semester. And so basically it's an act of self-selection. Mm-hmm. Those that are already decided they're going to stay, those that are already going to be involved in campus, yes. they have already jumped into those types of things. And so it's more of a self-selection. It's proving what we already know. Right. Yeah, it's saying those are students we know that are going to be here, but what about the others who are not involved in those things? Right. You know, we looked at some data and it showed that those who get involved in their first year in at another institution in intramurals retain right. at a 2% higher rate than the general population does. That was actually a better statistic than the other because mm-hmm. that – as, as important as it is, it's glue that keeps them there, mm-hmm. but but it's not a predictor of retention because it yeah. happens halfway through the first semester. Well, and what's the, the actual semester. cause there? What's the actual yeah. effect? Is this a That's symptom right. or, or a leading? That's right. Uh, sort of behavior. Yeah. So yeah. you have to look at those things and say, is this practically significant? Is this really going to make? If I act on this piece of information based upon everything else I know. Will it make a difference? Mm-hmm. And so we have to get through that type, the noise. Yeah. That that's and data has noise. I mean, because you run the data set I'm working with right now. Me and um, one of our statistical geniuses at Southeastern, Dr. Tom Gallery, uh, has we're partnering together on this project. I mean, we've got 160 some data points, and we'll get it down to a dozen, two dozen, because the others in themselves might show some significance, but that may be that may be included in another statistic that we already have over here or another data point. So we will drop that out. So there's a lot of noise there that you have to get through. So yeah. and that's one of the dangers, big dangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So there are some some potential downsides. Yeah. On uh, you know maybe focusing on data in the wrong way or mm-hmm. you know some some potential pitfalls there, but you made a point to say it's usually the opposite problem. It's more about we need to embrace the data. We need a more data driven mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about what thoughts you have on how uh, institutions can do a better job uh, supporting and nurturing a, a data driven culture. Yeah. Um. That's that is a great question. It's a question that we're all wrestling with. Um, I've given some talks on that at some professional meetings and some presentations about it Um, because that's to me is one of the most key things. And one of the things that attracted me to Southeastern was the fact that they were going to let me. I mean, more so than other, more so that a part of my job would be to make a difference with data. Mm -hmm. That would be a part of my job. And that was exciting to know that coming in, they were looking for me to provide data that would inform decisions. And so I've walked into the right culture in that sense. And that's been exciting to to see. And I I I would say something I mentioned earlier, you really have, as an IR person, you need to change your mindset. You've got to adopt an entrepreneurial mindset, uh, a startup mindset that, you know, it's not going to come to me. I've got to go to them. I've got to find out what the questions are that are being asked. I've got to find out what the needs are. I've got to find out how they're using the data and those types of things. And then I need to hit some home runs early. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to say, okay, if we're going to provide this emphasis and we're going to look at this year, and it involves some strategic planning. It involves saying, okay, these are the needs in data. 
These are how we're going to prioritize them, and these are where we're going to hit our home runs this year. And I have tremendous bosses who support me in in this. Dr. Permitter and Cody Lloyd both uh, support me in this. One in helping me give direction, but also in working hard to get the resources to us so that we can get this type of information out to people because they see the value in it and. A leadership team that we have is 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 very much wanting the data to drive the decisions that they make. So, so I've walked into a beautiful environment in that sense. But if you don't have that, you've got to develop it, and you got to find out who your customers are, uh, and you got to find out what questions they're asking, and that's the first part. Because if you're answering questions nobody's asking, it's waste of time and effort and frustration. Right. And I found I did that. You know, I found neat things out, and how I, I started out as a registrar in higher education, but part of my job was to send the information to iPads and a few others. And as I was looking at this, I was like, I'd go to my uh, vice president and I'd say, "Did you know this about this group of our students? Or did, have you seen this?" And sometimes he would say, "Yeah, yeah, I understood that, and this is why it's this way." He'd inform what I had seen, and then other times he'd say, "No, that's interesting. Let's look at that a little bit further." And so when we went through accreditations, all the rest of this stuff, we needed somebody to do this, and that's how I ended up in institutional research, and I love it. Um, uh, but you've got to, uh, along the way, I've answered questions nobody was asking. I've put out stuff that nobody read, mm-hmm. and it's because nobody cared. <laughs> right? So so part of it is learning. Part of it is listening. <laughs> part of it is, is, is talking to people. You know, and that's the project that, you know, I do at night or I've got a half an hour on a Friday afternoon, and I just go back and I look at it just for fun right. and just to see if there's anything there for that. So, um, you know, sometimes you can suggest questions, though, you know, sometimes have you thought about such and such before you're doing all the research or whatever? You can make suggestions with stuff, um, and you can provide those self-initiated reports. Um, sometimes I've done stuff for a conference, a professional conference I'm going to, because it pr- provides a a purpose and a use there. It makes me a better researcher, and then I bring it back and say, "Hey, this is what I presented on." Do me a favor and read it and tell me what you think of it. And that's helped inform decisions. And then they'll come back with the the real question that they're asking. And I may have gotten in the right pond, but I'm not fishing for the right fish yet. And then they've told me what to go fishing for, and that's where we've gone. So that's been a great thing. But so you gotta know what questions people are asking, which means you gotta be around them. You can I look at the data requests that we get in. I look at the questions that we get asked. Um, I sit in faculty meetings occasionally. I've sat in dean's meetings. I've talked to our leadership team. I've sat down at the lunch table with with people and just listened and talked and asked questions and then made the initiative to reach out to people. Um, I think data-driven decisions, you got to deliver on-time quality. Now, sometimes the, the deadline is so tight that you can't deliver hundred percent quality so you've got to be happy with 95 percent or 95 or 93 percent so you write a caveat in it and you say hey this this is based on a couple projections I haven't been able to vet it completely if you'd like me to go deeper in it I'll be glad to but you deliver it on time and you deliver the quality that helps them answer the question that they need build a brand in other words what do I want my office to look like 
what all what, when people think of the Office of Research and Strategic Projects, what do they think about? What do they think of? Or if they think of the Office of Institutional Research, what do they think about? What do they know about me? And so um, you've got to be able to explain what you do. And, and what we do is hard yeah. to explain to people, you know. And, well, and, 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 and just to jump in there, yeah. I mean, I think this is there are many uh, folks on the marketing side that uh, historically have been viewed as, oh, these are the pretty picture people. Yeah. But right. marketing properly executed is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think that idea of kind of building a brand and really thinking, okay, how are we perceived? Mm-hmm. But then also what I love about what you're saying is I'm really trying to get to know the folks that could potentially care mm-hmm. about what I have to yeah. offer and what I have to bring in them. I'm trying to understand them well enough that I can start anticipating and, and figuring out where I can provide utility mm-hmm. so that, and, and that's as much about the brand building. It's not just having some alliteration with like Firefox, which is great. It's catchy, yeah. but it's the deeper thing of let me find what's truly relevant, mm-hmm. bring that to the table, show how my unit can really contribute to this bigger picture here. And, you know, whether in, in marketing, whether they're trying to, uh, you know, work with IR more effectively and gather the intel that that can inform their decisions there, or partnering better with enrollment. Um, yeah, I think it's just a it's just such an interesting point you bring up. Yeah, and you're the pretty pictures, and we're the numbers guys. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, that and that's those misnomers, and so that's why I use things like we help people make data informed decisions. Mm-hmm. We provide the information that you need to answer your questions. That is stuff people can understand. And how I came to that was when I'd go to church or be out in the community or get introduced to somebody and say, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm the director of institutional research. Oh, what's that? And then their eyes would glaze over when I gave them a five-minute <laughs> explanation. So I learned how to to distill it down. And as I distilled it down, it was like it forced me through a process of thinking about it, mm-hmm. that what do I really want it to be? And so – and I think every IR person needs to do that uh, because they need to think of themselves beyond just, oh, I fill out reports, mm-hmm. you know, or I provide the information when I'm called on to looking at how they can help make an effect uh, strategic change and, mm-hmm. you know, in harmony with the strategic plan and harmony with the direction and the purpose and the mission of the church. It's not running out and being a lone wolf. It's working as part of a bigger team. So... Um, and that's kind of like that building your brand, you know, developing a strategy is a part of all of that. Um, I also look for early adopters, and oftentimes they come to me, you know, hey, can I do this? And after a while I realize that, you know, Dr. Collins is somebody who's going to come ask me for data or somebody else is, and it's like, oh, man, you know, these guys, they know how to use data. They understand it. They understand the importance. Because here's the thing, if the chair of the School of Arts and Arts and Humanities, or the School of Barnett School of Theology, are are asking these types of questions. So is every other dean out here. Mm-hmm. And so the answers that I give them, the information I give them, is probably pertinent to others as mm-hmm. well. So I find those early adopters, and I give them that information. And that what ends up happening typically is. They share it with others. Say, hey, you know, Ken sent me this. And, man, this has been a great resource. And so that's the type of thing that helps. You find those early adopters, those key influencers, and you partner with them. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily deliberate, or, but it's synergistic. 
and it helps you help others. And that that's really how I look at it. And then, of course, it's educate. You know, I've been able to speak at our faculty forum. I've been able to hold conferences and workshops. I do a six-week SQL programming introduction so that people can use some of the little star databases we've set up with that have static but good historical information that they need to, to be able to use or to write reports based upon that. Uh, One-hour training sessions, coffees, you know, lots of different things like that. Um, I did a data-driven decision-making seminar this past fall, and we're going to be doing something different for this coming fall in that area. The infographics, the Firefax, uh, email conversations, all of those types of things help educate mm-hmm. uh, and help teach the importance of data because if we don't see ourselves as those who educate and show the value right they're not going to intrinsically figure out that it's valuable the only time they'll ask for it is every five years when they have to do a a full evaluation of their department Uh, but then it also means getting the data out there to them we've Mm -hmm. set up some self-service reports Mm -hmm. that they can go pull for themselves to get data that they can work with in that way so that's all a part of it. Very and, interesting. Uh, I think measuring what you do would probably be the last thing mm-hmm. uh, I would say, you know. And I look at it on a yearly basis, you know, how many people have bought into making data informed decisions? How many people are bought in is not right. How many people are now using the data to make data informed decisions? What products, quote unquote, have we developed this year that have made it? And this is a key one that have made a difference, the tangible outcomes. You know, are these dashboards being used? Are they looking at them? Are they using the infographics? Are people coming by the office saying, hey, can I get a copy of that infographic? I can look on where we put those things online and tell how many people have downloaded them, you know, and and those types of things. But that also means keeping it out in front of them and and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, and being patient. Yeah. Because it's a long process. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Any sort of culture change like that would be very good. The one thing I would remind everyone of, whether you're working on the marketing side or on the IR side or working together, is that we have a lot of tools today and more tools are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the latest tool is not always the best tool. I still use Excel um, and PDFs, you know, and all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. I have one student worker who uses illustrator i have another one who uses photoshop that's fine they both do great jobs with that if it's me i will use photoshop because i used to do photography and that's what i know um but you've got to learn the tools and you've got to be able to use them appropriately Mm -hmm. not just because you have the tool do you use it you know yeah yeah i like to do woodworking in my shop and I got lots of hammers, but we also have a three-year-old granddaughter who lives with us, and she likes my hammers. <laughs> but they're not appropriate for everything. <laughs> and there are lots of tools that we have. And I would encourage people to just learn a new tool, you know, not just for the tool's sake, but as you're looking and as you're writing these stories, telling these stories, and you're informing people's decisions, you know, you ask, how can we best communicate that? Mm-hmm. And and I think... and. I would hope one day to have a team of people that I can go to that includes creatives, that includes the statisticians, the analysts, and the data crunchers, and all of that type of stuff. That, um, and not just people that are working for me, 
of people on campus that we've we've partnered with that who just in who help inform what i do Mm -hmm. so that we can do it better and i think that's a good part of it very good well ken thank you so much for your time today yeah this has been a really interesting and i think just very informative and fun conversation so thank you so much for being here i appreciate it thank you for the opportunity Higher Ed Marketing Lab is produced by Echo Delta, a full-service marketing firm dedicated to helping higher education institutions drive enrollment, increase yield, and capture donors' attention. For more information, visit echodelta.co. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And as always, if you have questions, suggestions, episode ideas, or just want to reach out and say hi, drop us a line at podcast at echodelta.co. See you next time.